Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church of Imperial Valley. We would love to help you plan your visit, so we encourage you to visit our website at www.cccciv.org for service times and our events calendar. Or get the app. You'll find the Christ Community Church IV mobile app in your app store for Apple or Android devices. I don't want God to look down on the way that I'm living my life in the word, through the word, and for him to be grieved and weeping over my condition. He was angry. And then he says this in verse 15, he says, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. We saw that last week. The Nicolaitans were those who lorded their authority over, and they taught men that it really didn't matter how you lived your Christian life because you were covered with grace and mercy anyway. God says, I hate that. Jesus says, I hate that. Verse 16, he says, repent. The word means to have a change of mind, to change the way you think about something. You're living one way. You're allowing a false doctrine in. You're allowing a false teaching in. He says, change your mind about that and turn back to me. Repent or I'm going to come quickly, suddenly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I do not want to touch that battle. I know that that is a fight that I will never win. So I need to surrender now. And I need to say, God, convict me through your word now so that you don't have to do battle with me with the word of your mouth later on. Revelation 19, we'll see that. We'll see that eventually. God, I want to surrender to you now. I repent now. I change my mind about the way I'm living now. And I want to live my life the way your word calls me to live my life. Repent, or I'll come to you quickly. I'll fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him hidden manna to eat, and I'll give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except himself. So we see the correction. Now we see the motivation that they have. And he says, if you repent, I'm going to give you the hidden manna. I'm going to give you a white stone, and I'm going to write upon that stone a new name, and you're the only one who will know what this name means. It's amazing because in the 6th century, when the Babylonians came and they ransacked Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple, the prophet Jeremiah, he had gone in and he had taken the manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat. He took that manna and he went and he hid it in the hills and the clefts and the crevices of Mount Nebo. And the rabbis taught that when the Messiah would come, the Messiah would go and would find that manna and bring that manna back. And so what Jesus is saying here is saying, I'm the one who's going to find the manna. More specifically, in John chapter 6, Jesus is saying, I am the manna. I'm the bread of life. I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. I am the one who brought bread and offered my body broken for you, but you didn't see it. And you didn't receive it. You should have, but you didn't. Jesus says, I am the manna. I am the bread. I am the Messiah who has come. He says, I'm going to give you a white stone. That's important for two reasons. In those days, when a friendship was struck, they would exchange these white stones. And it it was a sign of friendship that would last forever. And so Jesus is saying, I'm your friend. I'm giving you my friendship forever. But also, the second reason why this is important is because at a trial, 
When a judge would decide guilt or innocence, if a man or a woman was found guilty, they would receive a black stone. If they were found innocent, they would receive a white stone. And so Jesus is saying, if you repent, if you hold fast my name, you're going to be declared innocent before the Father. I don't know about you, but I need that. I need to be declared innocent by God because I know the condition of my heart. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of our God. We were those people. We were that list. But when we stand in the presence of God, if we've come to Christ and exercise our faith in him, we don't have to stand there in our own righteousness. If we stood there based upon our own merits and our own works, we would receive the black stone, would we not? But when we've been washed and sanctified and justified by the work of Jesus upon the cross, when we say yes to Jesus, we receive the white stone and we're declared innocent and we can stand there in the presence of God without doubt. Now, amen. He also says there that you're going to receive a new name that no one knows except you. It's like you're receiving a pet name. Like God is naming you. Now, in the Bible, we see people who have been renamed over and over and over again, have we not? Right? We see Abram, which means father or exalted father. His name is changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. We see Jacob, whose name means heel snatcher. His name changed to Israel, which means governed by God. We see Simon. His name is changed to Peter, which means a rock, a pebble, a rock, a stone. We see Paul or Saul, whose name literally meant to inquire of God, changed to Paul, which means humble. In the scripture, when we see a name changed, it means more than just you're getting your name changed. It means you're receiving a new character. God is giving you a new spirit. It's like you're this new person. And God says, I'm going to give each of you a name that no one's going to know but you and I. I want that. Do you want that? I want to see that. Now, which church does this stand for? This stands for the church historically, the compromising church that began with the reign of Constantine. In the year 311, in the year 311, the emperor by the name of Diocletian passed away. He died. And there began to be this competition for who would reign over the Roman Empire. And there was a main rivalry between Maxentius and Constantine. And Constantine was badly outnumbered. And he's asleep one night and he receives this vision. He has this dream of a cross. And he hears this voice saying, in this sign conquer. In the sign of the cross, the symbol of the cross, conquer. And so he takes this as sign as that he's supposed to convert to Christianity. And when he converts to Christianity, all of the Christians who hadn't enlisted in the battle joined in Constantine's army and they went to fight on behalf of Constantine. And Constantine takes over the Roman Empire. And one of the first things he does in the year 313 is he issues the Edict of Milan, which basically tolerated Christianity. It outlawed the persecution of the church. 
So where you see the time period of Smyrna, the church is being persecuted and the church is pure because of it. Now all of a sudden there's great compromise that is entering into the church because now Christianity is being tolerated. And there's a man there by the name of Athanasius who holds fast the word of God. You remember the commendation? He holds fast the word of God. And there's a man named Arius who's going around preaching that Jesus wasn't God. He was God's greatest creation. And so there's this debate that happens. And there's this council that is called the Council of Nicaea in year 325 where this debate raged. And finally, finally, 300 bishops come together. And when a man, a hermit from Africa steps forward and he takes off his robe, and he turns around and he shows the scars upon his back being beaten because of his faith in Jesus. He says, I cannot believe that we are even entertaining the thought of believing that Jesus isn't God. Look at what my belief has cost me. And at that point, they all decide, yes, Jesus really truly is God. But it creates this incredible rift in the Christian church. And the followers of Arius hate the followers of Athanasius. And so there's this trial that commences a few years later. And in order to come back to the communion table, Athanasius says, you can't have communion. You don't believe Jesus is God. There's no way I'll serve you communion. Because they want to participate in communion, they come together and they have this other meeting, this trial basically. And they've accused Athanasius of taking the virginity of a woman. And so they put her on the stand, and she's explaining what Athanasius has done to her. And sitting next to Athanasius is his disciple named Timotheus. And so they give Athanasius a chance to recant or a chance to combat her accusations. And Athanasius sits there silent and doesn't move, doesn't make a word. And Timotheus stands up and says, is it me? Am I the one who took your virginity? And she began to accuse him. And yes, it was you. You're that wicked, evil man. And everyone understood at that point that they had planted that woman there to bring an accusation against Athanasius. Second accusation brought against him was that he had murdered one of his rivals named Arsenius. Not this Arsenius, right? But he had murdered one of his rivals, Arsenius, and they had an embalmed hand in a wooden box that they claimed belonged to him. Athanasius' disciples had found Arsenius in hiding, and they brought him into the congregation with a cloak upon himself. And they unveiled the cloak, and they said, is this the man that I murdered? Oh, yeah, that's the guy we said you murdered. And they pulled it down further, and look, he has two hands. God has not given him three hands. Clearly, I haven't done this. And so the, the congregation gets into an uproar, and they have to take Athanasius out, and he goes and he stands before Constantine. And there before Constantine says to him, Athanasius, why will you not allow the Arians, those followers of Arius, to come to the communion table? Don't you understand that the entire world is against you? And Athanasius says, then I am against the world. And he's banished. Did you remember what Jesus wrote? He says, I have these problems with you, but I know that you've held fast to my name, my deity, that I am God. And I recognize my martyr Antipas against all. Athanasius literally said, I am the one who am against all. And it matches this period of church history perfectly. Now, by the year 380, Theodosius is in power. 
He's a follower of Athanasius. He believes in the Nicene Creed. He believes in the deity of Christ and in the Trinity. And he issues another edict called the Edict of Thessalonica, basically stating that from now on, the state religion of the Roman Empire is Christianity. And babies at that point are required to be baptized into the Christian faith. What a complete change of scenery. But as this happened, the Roman Empire began to appoint bishops and it became something to be desired to be in a religious office. And so compromise crept in and doctrine was compromised because they were marrying literally the culture with the church and it didn't please the Lord. Objectionable marriage, do you see? Now what can we learn about this personally? We can see that compromise with the world leads to a loss of identity with Christ. Maybe you've been tempted to compromise yourself where you're at this morning and in your life. Compromise is not worth it. To compromise and to turn your back on Jesus, to lose who you are in Christ, it is never worth it. Let me read to you what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about our identity, about who we are. He says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? Don't yoke yourself. Don't marry yourself to someone who's not a believer. Light and darkness can't mix. He says, what accord has Christ with Biel and what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Not just in marriage, but in business transactions, in business relationships, in the people that you hang out with, in the people that you call your closest friends. What fellowship has light with darkness? Don't you realize that you are light? Don't you realize that's your identity? He goes on, he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You're the temple of God. Why are you allowing idolatry into your presence? Why are you allowing these things to take place? Don't you understand who you are in Christ? You cannot mix the world with the church. You cannot mix the world with the kingdom. You've got to choose. Paul to the church in Corinth, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow the serpent, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. He says, I betrothed you. You're now engaged to Jesus. And I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. And I worry about you every single day because I'm worried that the world is going to be fancy and shiny and attractive to you. And because it's so attractive, you're going to leave the Jesus that you're engaged to and you're going to follow after the world. Don't do it, Paul would say. Don't follow after that. It's only going to lead to heartache and destruction. Deuteronomy 4.24, the Lord says this. He says, the Lord is a consuming fire and a jealous God, one who is not content to share your heart with anyone else. Do not compromise, church. Do not follow after the church of Pergamos. Now, the fourth church that we're going to look at is a church called Thyatira, The definition of this church literally means a continual sacrifice. It's from two root words. One being an incense offering, a burning of an offering, a sacrifice. The other word being something that continually happens. 
The city was famous for its crops and its purple dye, but it was also famous for its trade guilds. And every trade in the city had a guild. It was like a union that you had to join in order to be able to sell your wares and do your work in the city. And at these guilds, they would have monthly gatherings. And at these monthly gatherings, they would eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. There was sexual immorality going on in the midst of these at the temples of the idols. And if you weren't a part of this guild, if you didn't attend these meetings, you weren't a allowed to sell. So let's read the problem that this church had. It said to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. So there you have right there the revelation that Jesus says, he is the judge. Did you catch that? He's the judge. His eyes are like a flame of fire. They're watching and looking at you this morning and it cuts through all of the show that you might put on for us. We sit here, we stand here, and we raise our hands and we sing these songs, but our minds are somewhere else. And God sees that. His eyes are like a flame of fire burning away the outside, and he sees your heart. He's the judge. Eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass. This is a quotation from Daniel chapter 10. I think it's important for us to see that when you come into the presence of God, God is watching you. It doesn't matter how many other eyes are on you. God is watching you, my friends. And he's watching to see where your heart is at. And he discerns your heart. In Luke chapter 18, there's a story of a Pharisee who's praying before God. And he's praying this long and lengthy prayer. And he's thanking God that he's not like all of the other sinners in the room. And then in the back of the room, there's a tax collector who's praying, and he's beating his chest, and he won't even raise his eyes to God because he knows the condition of his heart. He knows who he is when he stands in the presence of God, and he's ashamed of it. And he beats his heart. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That man, Jesus said, the tax collector standing off in the dark in the corner by himself, beating his breast and crying out to God. That's the one who went away justified, not the man who thought he had it all together. Amen. Not the one who was putting on a show. God sees the heart. This is what the scripture says in Hebrews 4.13. There is no creature hidden from his sight. Not a one. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to must, whom we must give an account. We are completely vulnerable and stripped down and naked before the eyes of God. He sees every single one of your imperfections, but he loves you perfectly anyways. That's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. So Jesus, he came the first time as the Savior, He'll come the second time as the judge. And that's what he's saying in this revelation to this church. The commendation, let's look at this. He says to the church in Thyatira, your works are increasing. You're doing a lot of great things for Jesus. He says this. He says, I know your works, verse 19. Your love, your service, your faith, your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. You're just doing more and more and more for Jesus as time goes on. You're increasing in your works. I see that you're loving people. I see that your motive seems to be right. I see these things. I see that you're working hard for me. But, but, just because you have works, just because you have a lot of things in order, doesn't mean that there can be allowed even one sin in your midst. 
our salvation, you understand it's not like a scale, right? It's not important that the good outweighs the bad. You have to surrender everything to the Lord. Everything. And so he says this in the next verse. He's going to get into their correction. He says, nevertheless, verse 20, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and things sacrificed to idols. This is the problem that I see with you is that you're compromising in the area of purity in the midst of the church. I wonder if God would speak the same to you this morning. Jezebel was a wicked, wicked woman. And King Ahab, the king of Israel, he married her, came from one of the heathen lands, she brought with her her worship of Baal and the way they worshiped in sexual immorality. She brought the prophets of Baal into the temple of God. She completely destroyed what God was doing through her actions. And here is what Jesus says, I hate that you allow this woman into the presence to teach and to commit sexual immorality and things sacrificed to idols. You should not allow this woman into your presence. He says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she would not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one according to your works. Does that scare anybody else to read that? Man, I don't want to be anywhere near this correction that the church of Thyatira is receiving. I don't want my children's lives risked because of the way I'm living my life. I don't want to destroy their lives by what they observe me doing and the way they observe me living and walking with Jesus. I don't want to destroy their children's children's lives because of actions and attitudes that they see within me. Impurities that I allow into my life and into my home. Things that I watch, things that I listen to, things that I partake in, I don't want them to watch those things and it to end up destroying my family. But we do it every day, don't we? And it's God who searches the hearts and the minds and he's gonna reward us according to our works. If I have to stand in the presence of Jesus according to my works, I have no hope. The scripture says that my righteousness is like filthy rags. How can I ever stand in the presence of Jesus on my own? I can't. Verse 24 says, Now I say to you, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast to what you have until I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels, as I have received from my Father. He says, this is your motivation. This is why you should hold fast, because when you do, you're going to rule with me. You get to rule with me. How many of you want to rule with Jesus? Amen? Now, you're going to be able to sit with me on my throne, you're going to be able to sit there at my side. You're going to be able to watch over the nations of the world, and you will be ruling with me. The word rule can be translated shepherd. 
Jesus is saying, I want you to hold fast. I want you to hold on to my name because when you do, I'm gonna invite you to shepherd the people with me. You'll be able to lead the people. You'll be able to bring them into my presence. You'll be able to bring them to a brook that flows with plenty of water. You'll be able to lead them into a pasture that is growing with green grass and they'll never be wanting for food or drink again. You can satisfy their every need. You can help me shepherd these people if you'll overcome to the end. That's a reason to hold on, is it not? Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. Christ Community Church has campuses in El Centro, Calexico, and Brawley with services in English and in Spanish. Your kids are going to love our kids' church. Plus, we have a lively youth ministry and young adults group. You're welcome to call the church office at 760-337-9400 with your questions. Or leave us a message on the Christ Community Church IV mobile app, the cccivy.org website, or direct message us on social media. We are really looking forward to meeting you. So again, the website is www.cccivy.org or call 760-337-9400 so we can plan your visit.